You filthy criminals. Well, I wish you'd explain it to me sometime, Buster. Without disappointment, you can't appreciate victory. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, as always, this stuff in lieu of actual entertainment. Alrighty then. Hello and welcome back. This is Storytime and I am GamerDude. Glad to have you with us for some more stories this week. I'm not sure how to classify what we're going to talk about today. It's inspired by a question that Ben Solo put up in our Discord. Yes, we do have a Discord. If you're at all interested in looking at it, you're welcome to DM me on Twitter at ReallyGamerDude, and I'll be happy to send you the information. But Ben Solo has been posting music things in our music channel on the Discord and posed the question about the Columbia Music Club. And people of a certain age know exactly what I'm talking about. The Columbia Music Club. Get 10 records for 99 cents. Get 10 cassettes for 99 cents. Get 8 CDs for 99 cents. Those were the sales pitches we grew up with. And so I want to talk about that. And while I did write about it in the Discord, I also wanted to talk about it here. So we're going to do that in a few minutes. But before I get to that, I started thinking about all the other little schemes, clubs, advertisements, I don't know what to call them, that I grew up with. Naturally, as a kid, I read comic books. Now, I was not a Marvel or a DC guy when I was a kid. I didn't have anything against Superman or Batman, but I just didn't get into those stories for whatever reason. I mean, I knew who they were, but my comic book taste ran more towards Archie and Reggie and Veronica and Betty and Jughead. I had Richie Rich comics. Disney comics were big in my house. Beetle Bailey. We had Bugs Bunny comics. I mean, the comics that we had were all lighthearted and definitely not serious, definitely not superhero related. I didn't have anything against them, as I said. They just weren't my taste back then. But in the comic books, that's where we saw all these glorious ads for these wonderful things that every little kid wanted. And boy, the advertisers knew how to get to us. They'd put cool things in these ads and we wanted them. Oh, did we want them. And as I started putting together today's episode, I started thumbing through some of those old comic books and remembering some of those old ads. And boy, there was a lot of stuff they tried to get us to buy. I mean, some of it was simple stuff. There was this one ad for a hundred toy soldiers for a buck, and they came in a cool footlocker. Now, I never bought these soldiers, but boy, did I want them. I mean, we got our soldiers from Kmart or at Jamesway in a plastic bag with all the soldier stuff you could possibly want. But for the price of a single dollar, you could get a hundred toy soldiers. Okay, it wasn't exactly all soldiers. They had a breakdown of what was in there. Soldiers and tanks and jeeps and ships. They broke out machine gunners and snipers and riflemen. So all those hundred pieces would be in this bag they'd send to you in this plastic little footlocker, which was probably about three by five. Who knew? I never bought them. I knew enough not to ask my dad for a buck to send away for toy soldiers. But boy, those toy soldier ads, they were prominently displayed in every comic book that I can remember. They also love to sell us those Daisy air rifles or Daisy BB guns. If you've seen the movie A Christmas Story, and who hasn't? But if you've seen that movie, you know that BB gun that Ralphie is talking about, the Red Rider BB gun? That's basically a Daisy air rifle. And those Daisy air rifles were also advertised all of the time. They called them air rifles. Sometimes they called them BB guns. I'm not even sure if they're two different things because I don't know Daisy rifles. I mean, they could be. I'm not a gun guy. But I remember them being all over the comic books. They really wanted us to buy those guns. And they knew to advertise to the kids in the comic books. So the kid would take the comic book to mom and dad and go, Hey, here's my Christmas present. Oh, they made them look so cool, too. You'd have that Wild West scene. 
A drawing of a kid on a horse carrying one of the Daisy rifles. I don't know why they were Daisy rifles. Daisy was the name of the company, but I don't know why they were called Daisy. But anyway, you'd have the kid on the horse carrying his Daisy BB gun, looking like a badass on his horse. Sometimes they'd advertise three models of the gun. I don't know what the difference was, except the price. And they weren't that expensive. I mean, by today's standards. Like $9.95 for the base model, $14.95 for the expensive one. In today's dollars, that doesn't seem like a lot. But for a little kid gamer dude, $9.95 might as well have been a dragon's hoard. I wasn't going to see $0.95, cents, let alone $9.95. Again, I was not going to get a PB gun. My parents didn't want me playing with G.I. Joe. I certainly wasn't getting a BB gun. I considered myself lucky to get one of those pretend pearl-handled revolvers for our cowboy shootouts. That came in the bottom of an auction box full of stuff. I begged and pleaded to keep it, and that was just a cap gun. And in case you don't know, a cap is a little strip with little pockets of gunpowder on them. Yes, literal gunpowder. And you'd feed it through these toy guns, and the little hammer would hit the little cap and make a bang sound. Not like a gun, but a bang. And my parents hated those. I was never allowed to have caps. But an actual BB gun that shot actual things when I had a younger brother and sister? No, that was not going to happen. But I do remember those Daisy BB gun ads. They were all over the place. They also wanted to sell us ant farms. I don't know why ant farms were so popular, but there were ads for ant farms. And if you've never seen the ant farms that they used to advertise, and if you never had one in your science classes, it's basically a colony of ants in between two pieces of glass with a gap between the two pieces of glass that's maybe an inch wide. And the point was you could watch the ants build a colony that was in the dirt between the two pieces of glass. To me, not a fascinating toy, not a great pet. It's not like you're taking the ants out for a walk or anything. You just watch them be ants. But boy, they advertised them. The other thing they advertised, the sea monkeys. You may have heard of sea monkeys. I think you can still get sea monkeys. I mean, they're not monkeys. They don't even look like monkeys. It wasn't until years later that I learned that they were brine shrimp. I actually looked it up. There was a guy who developed this special dehydrated shrimp-type egg. And they'd sell you a packet of these eggs, and they'd have a water purifier. And they had a water conditioner they'd send you in the package. And they had detailed instructions on how you could build a colony of brine shrimp. I'm sorry, sea monkeys. I think it was my dad who broke it to me and said, You know, there are no monkeys in the sea. These are just drawings of what they want you to think they're going to look like. And we had the talk because I wanted those sea monkeys. I thought it would be cool. My own little sea monkeys in my own little aquarium. That was one of the few things that I asked my dad if we could send away for. He wasn't having anything to do with those sea monkeys. No siree. My dad was no dummy. One of the other big ads they had in the comic books was for Charles Atlas. Now, Charles Atlas was the strongman of the time. Actually, that's not entirely accurate. Charles Atlas was a strongman back in the 1920s and the 1930s, but he created a company based on his weightlifting regimen. The story goes, and the story is from the ad itself, but Charles Atlas was a 97-pound weakling, which we learned meant that he weighed 97 pounds and was weak. And according to the comic that was always part of the ad, scrawny little Charles Atlas would take his girlfriend to the beach and some big husky hiker would confront him at the beach and kick sand in his face and steal his girl. And the husky hiker would criticize Charles for being a 97-pound weakling. So Charles took it upon himself to begin exercising and building muscles by weightlifting and bodybuilding. And what his ad promised you was that if you bought his little booklets, you too would become a musclehead, like Charles. Because, of course, the comic strip ended with Charles no longer being a scrawny 97-pound weakling. He now looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger. And so, as the ad went, for the small price of a dollar, 
you could have Charles Atlas's bodybuilding exercises. Now, I wasn't a scrawny kid. As I've talked about in the past, I was a fat kid. But there was a part of my mind that figured, well, if I could exercise, build up my body, maybe I can take off some of this weight. And so I seriously contemplated Charles Atlas's offer. But that's one of those conversations. How do you have that with your parents? Well, uh, Dad, I need a dollar. I, I need a pamphlet on how to become a bodybuilder. I mean, it's not a conversation I was comfortable having. I mean, I had an allowance. I guess I could have sent away for the booklet myself, but I never did. But there was a certain appeal to that argument. You get the girls by becoming a muscle head. It's only going to cost you a dollar, kid. I mean, I was tempted. Never did it, but I was tempted. I was even more tempted by the x-ray specs. Oh, the x-ray specs were in every comic book that I read. The x-ray specs were depicted as these glasses you could put on, and the ad showed the person with the glasses on holding their hand in front of them. And the ad said you could see your skeleton using these glasses. The drawing they had with it, it was never photographs, it was always a drawing. The drawing they had with it showed the kid looking at his hand and showing the bones underneath the skin. The other thing they had in that ad was a drawing of a voluptuous woman. And the ad copy also read, see-through clothes. Well, when your audience is a comic book reading red-blooded American boy, and you show a voluptuous woman there, along with the bones inside a hand, and the promise to see-through clothes, well, you had me sold right there. My preteen fantasies were going wild. Something inside me, though, knew that it couldn't possibly work. I mean, it was only a dollar to get a pair of x-ray specs. A dollar plus shipping and handling, of course. But something in me told me, this can't possibly work. And honestly, something in me also told me, that's kind of creepy. You're not that kind of person. You're not going to do that. You are not going to walk down the street with x-ray specs looking at the girls. I mean, maybe some guys would, but I knew it wasn't in me to do that. But the temptation was there. I just knew that I wasn't the kind of guy to succumb to that. Now, I learned years later that those x-ray specs were based on the use of lenses that created a diffracted image, which gives you two offset images and creates an illusion, if you're looking at your hand, that you're seeing the bones underneath the skin. It's actually a very scientifically based optical illusion. They don't tell you that in the ad, though. They want you to spend your dollar and get your x-ray specs. The other big ad that was super appealing and super tempting... They were ads for the Junior Sales Club of America. What the hell was the Junior Sales Club of America? They didn't actually tell you in the ads. But the Junior Sales Club of America had these full-page ads with drawings and illustrations of the various prizes you could win simply by selling Junior Sales Club of America stuff. And they had pictures of everything that a little boy could want. A sleeping bag, some swim fins, and a mask. A watch with big numbers and a fat wristband. Model ships and planes. They had drawings of a tent and an air rifle and even a bicycle. Yes, according to this ad, all you had to do was sell four orders and you could get a bicycle. It never said four orders of what in the ad. It just said four orders. But for one order, you could win the swim fins and the face mask for swimming. And boy, the array of prizes you could win was really something to behold. Oh, it was glorious. The prizes that were available. If you get the chance, go Google Junior Sales Club of America and just look at some of the ads that'll pop up. To eight-year-old gamer dude, it was amazing. All I have to do is sell one order? How hard could that be? If only I could do that, I would have a tent and a sleeping bag. I could build models. Not that I wanted a tent or a sleeping bag. I didn't like camping then. I don't like it now. I didn't like it then. But the idea of it was really cool. Especially if it would only take two orders to get a tent and a sleeping bag. 
I didn't learn until years later that the Junior Sales Club of America was the marketing genius of one of the owners of the company. And the company sold greeting cards. Their idea was to recruit young people, I'm not sure if they intended 8-year-olds, but 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 14-year-olds, all read comic books too. And what they would do is they would get these kids hooked in to sell greeting cards door-to-door. Now this is back at a time when door-to-door sales were kind of a normal thing. It's far less of a thing these days. I mean, back in the day, people would sell vacuum cleaners door-to-door. You'd have a vacuum cleaner salesman go from door-to-door-to-door-to-door in a neighborhood trying to sell vacuum cleaners to the homeowner. I don't know if you've heard of Fuller Brushes, but the Fuller Brush salesman was somebody who would come door-to-door and try to sell you brushes out of a suitcase. There were other businesses that were door-to-door back there. A lot of them appealed to kids. I remember trying to sell plant seeds. I think it was the Burpee Company. They recruited kids to sell seeds door-to-door. Flower seeds, vegetable seeds, plant seeds. Mason shoes. They used to be door-to-door. They expected people to go door-to-door, knock on the door... And try to sell their shoes to the people inside. And people back then would open the door and either have a conversation with you or slam the door in your face. So the Junior Sales Club of America wanted kids to go out and sell their greeting cards. And that's how they made their money. Door-to-door sales. Now, I never did this as a kid. But boy, they wrote some really great ads. And they made me really want to look into it and really consider selling whatever it was they wanted me to sell. Looking back, I love how they never made it clear what exactly you were selling. You just had to sell one order. One order, get you a sleeping bag. Oh, well, how hard could it be? Well, imagine, if you will, how hard it must be to sell an order of greeting cards to anybody door to door. Imagine being a little kid and going up to your neighbor and going, Hi, Mrs. Smith. I'd like you to buy some greeting cards from me. It must have worked because they did it for years. Those junior sales club ads were all over the comic books for literally decades. I just wonder how many kids actually got the sleeping bag or the bike. I'm thinking it can't be too many. But talking about the Columbia Record Club made me go back in my mind and relive this history of all the things they kept throwing at me when I was a kid. So when I was older and I got hit with my first mailing from the Columbia Record Club, I was already primed for it. By this time, I was making my own money. I knew how to read the fine print of a contract thanks to my dad. I understood what the ramifications were of joining these clubs or applying for these things. And so when I got my first Columbia Record Club mailer, I gave it a really good hard look. Because I figured, like my dad said with the Sea Monkeys, this must be too good to be true. Now to set the stage for you, I have to take you back to a pre-internet, pre-digital music period of our lives. Well, of my life. I grew up with vinyl records. Those were the things that I listened to. If I wanted to hear music, I had to put the album on, put it on a stereo, put the needle on the record, and let it spin. That was the primary way we listened to music. When cassettes came into being, you could buy a cassette tape and put it in a cassette deck, either in your stereo or in your car. It was the same album, but just on a cassette tape. The problem with a cassette tape is it was linear. If you wanted to listen to the fifth song, you had to fast forward through the first four songs and then hope you knew where the song was on the tape and stop it in time. We're skipping over the eight tracks because eight tracks were a different kind of taped music. Eight tracks had a very short lifespan in the history of music recordings. I did have an eight track tape player and you could get eight tracks through the Columbia Music Club, but I never did because eight tracks were a pain. But the focal point for Columbia Music was the LPs, the vinyl LPs, LP meaning long playing record, and the cassette tapes. And the offer went something like this. There were often variations. Sometimes it was get six. Sometimes it was get eight. Sometimes it was get 10. Sometimes it was get 12. But the one that sticks in my head was get 10 records for 99 cents. And what you would get in the mail was the Columbia Music Catalog. And it listed all of the albums that they had that month. 
It would also come with a sheet of stamps. Now, this wasn't just a little sheet like you get at the post office. This was a big sheet with about 100 stamps on it, 10 by 10. And this is from a time when the stamps were not the self-stick stamps you get now. These are the stamps that you actually had to lick and paste on the target piece of paper. And so you'd have your sheet of 100 stamps. Each stamp was a picture of a different record album. And they'd be all kinds of records. Rock and roll, country, classical, easy listening. And you could pick any 10. You could mix them up. You could get soundtracks. You could get greatest hits albums. Whatever they had on that sheet, you could pick 10 of those out, rip each one out, lick it carefully, stick it to the little card they sent to you. And once you got to 10, you mailed your card in. And in four to six weeks, you'd have your 10 albums for 99 cents. Sound too good to be true? Well, it basically was, because it wasn't just 10 albums for 99 cents. The terms of the agreement were this. You could have your 10 albums for 99 cents, but you had to agree to buy six more albums at regular club prices over the next three years. That is what we call the fine print. You could have your 10 albums, but you actually had to buy 16. So then it became a math problem. All right, so I get 10 for 99 cents. Then I have to buy six more at regular club prices. That catalog showed you that the regular club prices started at $9.99 for an album. Now that may not sound like much, but when I was a kid, all of the local department stores, James Way, Kmart, Caldors, they all had music departments, and they always put their records on sale. And you could get popular albums for $4.99, maybe $5.99. Sometimes it would be as much as $6.99. So Columbia was going to charge you 3 to $5 more per album for their regular club prices if you wanted to take advantage of their 10 for 99 deal. Now, $9.99 was the bottom line price. Some of those albums were $12.99. Some were $14.99. If you had a double album, it might be $16.99. So now you had to work out the math. All right, so I'm getting 10 for $9.99. Then I have to buy six more at, let's say, $10 a piece. And that's not even counting the shipping and handling, which you are also supposed to pay for as well. So six more albums, $10 a piece, that's 60 bucks. So I've got to buy a total of 16 albums for $61. All right, so let me pull out my calculator. That comes out to $381 an album. That's still not a bad deal, provided, of course, that I could find six albums at $9.99 over the next three years that I want. The problem with that, of course, is that the popular albums that just came out, that just became available on Columbia House, they were never at the $9.99 tier. They were at $12.99 or $14.99. And if I wanted that album, I could go down to Kmart and get it for $6.99. So then it became an issue of, do I want to wrestle with these calculations? Do I want to have to look at this catalog every month when they send it to me? Because that was the deal. They sent you a catalog a month. Do I want to go through this every month and try to find an album? It actually turns out that, yes, I did want to do that. I did it a couple of times. Because after you buy your six albums, you could cancel. And then you could re-up after about a year. Oh, and there's one more little fine print thing that I almost forgot about. When they sent you that monthly catalog, included with it was that month's selection. The powers that be at Columbia House would pick an album and that would be that month's selection. And what they would do is they would ship that selection to you automatically if you didn't return the card to them that came with the catalog and check off the box that said, send no selection. You had 10 days to do that. So when the catalog came, it was on you to open it up, pull the card out, check the box that said, send no selection, and return it to them. Because if you didn't do that, you'd get that month's selection automatically, no matter what it was. So the Columbia House record deal was a pretty good deal if you were careful and diligent about returning your cards and about picking your albums. 
They did a great job of marketing it. They did a great job of selling it to you. And if you were diligent, you could probably do well with it. Now, of course, people took advantage of this and tried to scam them as much as they were trying to scam you. I thought I was doing pretty well just getting my 16 albums for 381 an album. I was fine with that. I didn't like the fact that they forced me to buy an album every once in a while because I was a little slow in getting my card back to them. But others, they tried to scam them back and it didn't go so well for them. There was another club that I was also a member of, very similar in concept. It was called the Paperback Book Club. They weren't quite as generous with how many cheap books you could get. They only went six books for 99 cents, not 10 albums. I guess probably because books are more expensive to produce. But what the Paperback Book Club did was take popular hardcover books that came out. But rather than sell you the hardcover, they'd reproduce the hardcover book with a paperback cover. It looked exactly the same as the hardcover book. It was the same size as a hardcover book, but it had a paper cover on it, so it was cheaper to produce. And they did a very similar thing. Buy six books for 99 cents, and then just three more books at regular club prices over the next year. They shortened the time period, but reduced the required purchases. Now, I don't know if they were owned by the same people as Columbia House. I don't know if they learned a lesson from Columbia House, but it was the same principle. I got some good books that way, too, many of which I still have. And every time I pull them off the shelf, I go, oh, yeah, I remember that one from the paperback book club. The trickiest part about both the book club and the record club was finding the initial group to purchase. Because without fail, when they gave you that sheet of 100 stamps, you'd have to come up with 10 albums. And I could always come up with seven, maybe eight. And I really, really wanted those seven or eight albums. But that left me too short. So then I'd have to go over the remaining albums and see which two I wanted to fill out the 10. Do I really want this Pat Benatar album? There's a couple of good songs on it, and I like Pat Benatar. Oh, 38 Special. They're pretty good. Do I want their album? And so I'd agonize over those picks for those last two slots because I knew they were albums I didn't really, really want. So then I started questioning the wisdom of doing the thing to begin with. Because all of a sudden I'm not getting 10 albums that I really like. I'm only getting 8. And I'm getting 2 that are okay. And it was the same with the books. I'd find 4 books that I really, really wanted. And then I had to come up with 2 more to fill out the 6. And did I really want to spend one of my picks on the history of the ballpoint pen? I mean, I'm interested in writing and I'm interested in pens. But do I need a book about them? And once again, you're questioning the necessity of joining the club to begin with. There were many times I talked myself out of re-upping for these clubs, but I did join them and then rejoin them several times over the years because I loved the deal. That's how they got you. The deal was so good. Even having to buy 16 albums for $61, it's 381 an album. Not a bad deal. And if nothing else, I'm a sucker for a good deal. So those are a few of the things that I grew up with, some of the advertising campaigns that they threw at us as kids and that they threw at us as young adults, and that, yes, some of them I did succumb to, but I do still have some great albums left over from those days, so I can't be too upset. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's episode. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for being a part of things. As always, I appreciate your support, and I appreciate all the time you spend here. Until next time, you guys take care of yourselves, and I'll see you when I see you.